and I'm going to continue with a short series we're doing on this uh, chapter in Luke, which is um, crammed full of uh, important truths that Jesus was trying to convey about the kingdom and how it contrasts with the way that we might see reality and how different the two things sometimes are. And as you, you read these stories, you, you hear these phrases, don't you? You think, oh, I wonder where that came from. Eat, drink, and be merry comes from this story, from the story of the rich fool. So whenever you say, I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry, just have a little think about the context of the story. Um, up behind me, does anyone know who painted this picture? For five points. Have a guess. It's, actually, it's Rembrandt. So it's... Well, why didn't you say it? Why didn't you say it? You're getting no marks for not pressing the buzzer. Um, you know, it's too late now once I've given you the answer. That's not the idea of the quiz, is for me to give you the answer and then you give it back to me. Anyway, it's Rembrandt. Um, I want you just to look at um, him, how he's... Ca- this is the rich fool, by the way. It would be rather pointless putting up another picture, wouldn't it? Um, Just have a look at how he's portrayed by this artist who majored on parables and did a great one of the prodigal son, which you may have seen. Um, But this is the rich fool. You see, he's he's very much a a caricature of a sort of Scrooge-like figure before the book was even uh, written. He's actually, you can't quite see it, but he's examining a coin. So he's looking at a coin... for its inherent value and beauty and and everything else. And I want you to look, just look at him and consider honestly your internal reaction to him. What do you think? You are conditioned by the fact we're in church talking about the parable of the rich fool. So it's not really a very honest test, but what do you think about him? What, What do you project towards that picture. There is a a theologian philosopher called René Girard, who is French, I hope. (laughs) And he says that a lot of what we think about uh, and the way we behave is conditioned by something which he calls scapegoating. Um, basically we have a problem we know we have a problem it might be a sin or a tendency or a conflict Um, something in us uh, some discomfort ensues in us and we look for something else to project it onto instead of dealing with it honestly and you know metaphorically we kill it and of course the Jews did do that with a literal goat for their sins And Girard says that we do this all the time with our issues. We project it onto someone else. Um, His theory of the cross is based on that. When we look at that kind of projection of this kind of story, it's too easy to consider the sin of material greed, which of course it's all about, a material dependence on something other than God, and project it all onto him in the story, and say, God, I thank you I am not like this man. Just as the Pharisee did in the temple. And then project it in our anger onto other people in our society, currently known as bankers. 
And as I looked at the Keystone Cops episode developing outside St. Paul's Cathedral over the past two weeks, I thought, well, on one hand, I'd be with them. I actually agree with what they're saying. On the other, they're deflecting the sins of a whole society onto a particular group of people who are no less guilty, in my opinion, but the picture is much bigger. And I'm starting to read articles in newspapers that are saying, hang on a minute, you know what? This is all our problem. And it has been for 30 years. We're in denial of something that is deeply rooted in the way that we live and the way that we conduct our lives. And we lose almost everything that this parable has to say to us if we project it onto other people. If we say, this is something that other sinful people do and is nothing to do with me. None of those bankers are here, as far as I know. We are here. And it's God's word to us. Girard said something else as well. He, he talked about um, the way that we um, borrow our desires from other people. Far from being autonomous and independent and free, when we desire something, we want a material thing for ourselves, it's usually provoked by the desire of another person for it. We want a certain type of computer because a lot of other people have that type of computer. We want a certain type of car because somebody else has said it's a good type of car. We want to live in a certain area because other certain people live there, not because we particularly want to of our own free volition. And as soon as a desire for something in us is more than a simple need or an appetite, then it becomes something else. It becomes a desire that is actually a desire to be, not just to have. And as such, it gets confused with our identity, who we are. The things that we want start to get mixed up and muddled up with who we are. I think the Bible very clearly spots this. And I think the Bible calls that coveting, wanting what someone else has. And um, just as an aside, to sort of throw this in, people say, don't they, that our society is based on the Ten Commandments. Don't they say that? I think it's utterly untrue. I think it's absolute nonsense. It's absolutely almost no commandment do we keep in the Ten. Um, certainly our law is not based on any of them, um, other than the ones that all religions base their law on, like killing and stealing. And the one that we systematically break is number 10. So much so that our society is based on it. What do you think the advertising industry is all about? Other people have this. Why don't you? Our society is based on breaking the 10th commandment. And when we stop breaking it, we have a recession. That's the dilemma we're in. You know, the current economic crisis was caused by about a 4% drop in output, that's all. Nothing very major. Nothing like the 30s. And this is built into our identity, and there are no political solutions for it. Only Jesus can change it. I could be wrong about that, but I'm the speaker. 
Let's look at the story. The story is about or, or has its origin in a practice called primogeniture where um, the, the, the estate is divided up between um, the, the descendants, the sons, and the eldest gets a double portion of the estate in order to preserve it as a viable option. Um, good reasons for that, really good reasons. If you fragment the estate endlessly, it just falls apart. Um, but when you come to implement it, obviously it would cause conflict, and that's what Jesus is talking into. And what he's saying to these two brothers is, none of this is worth your relationship between each other. It's worth far more than the farm, the income, everything. Your life is not measured in what you own. Secondly, it's a development of a theme um, that, G that Luke picks up a lot. Luke talks a great deal about this. Um, Luke 6, 24 says, Woe to you who are rich, because you've already received your reward. The Zacchaeus story, where Zacchaeus gives up his wealth, pays back four times what he's owed, and is saved. The rich man and Lazarus was the parable about the afterlife. And then in Luke 18, the rich young man who was told to sell everything he has and give to the poor and couldn't. What I'm going to say, I, I don't want to romanticize the idea of being poor. I think that's nonsense. I want to go to the other extreme and talk about the dangers of putting our trust in riches. And of course, they're so seductive, because what is the sin of this man? Actually, he does what we all do. He puts something by for the future. And there are other places in the Bible where it tells you to do that. The whole story of Joseph in Egypt is about gathering in the crops, storing it for a future famine. So you can't be simplistic about this. We've got to look at what um, Luke is, is, is recording here, what Jesus is saying, as being more than just spend everything and give everything away. He's not saying that at all. I simply want to say that there is nothing so seductive in life so prone to hide God from us as our legitimate concerns, the things we have a right to worry about. They tend to absorb everything. They, they, they take in all our thoughts and concerns. And they start to muddle up things, three things that I just want to briefly talk about. Our identity, our security, and our purpose. Last week, Mark talked quite a lot about identity in the, the first bit of this chapter, who you really are. You only have one life. Don't let the acquisition of stuff define it. Jesus says life is not measured by what you own. Um, a guy called Thomas Merton, an American monk of the last century, a real monastic thinker, pointed out that we may spend our whole life climbing the ladder of success only to find when we get to the top that our ladder is leaning against the wrong wall. It takes years to get to the top of that ladder. It's a really painful mistake to make. Identity. It's so easy to drift into this. A level of material well-being uh, that we require not because we really need it, but because we want it to define us. We want others to see it and make that be our badge of reality. Um, we need a certain type of house in order to feel comfortable inviting people into it. Um, a certain type of car in order to be seen driving out. Or a certain type of holiday in order to be able to talk about it endlessly to others. 
On which note, I went to Kenya uh, a couple of weeks ago. It was, it was really exciting, and you didn't. Um, I was invited into a, a Maasai hut, which is made of wood and cow dung, basically. And I sat there for an hour. It's pitch black until my eyes adjusted. There's a fire blazing in the middle. Everything's coated in ash. And drink tea, which so much sugar in it, I thought I was going to die. But I, I got through it. We had a fantastic time. A really fantastic, eye-opening time. And I said afterwards to our host, I said, how can I repay this hospitality? And they said, you have by coming. Simply by being here, you've honored them and made them feel special. Their house was made of stick and cow poo, basically slapped onto it. All right? They were not ashamed to invite me into their house. When we strip away the surface of our life circumstances, very often... What we think is down to our own hard work and merit is actually due to luck or blessed circumstances. You notice in verse 16, it says, it doesn't say that the farmer had worked hard and had a massive crop and was, was a really good farmer. It said he had a farm, a fertile farm, that produced fine crops. In other words, he was blessed. You work hard for your salary, but you are vulnerable to the market. We all are. You have a stressful and well-rewarded job because you are blessed by God with the ability to do it. You didn't work hard at gaining brains or talent. You just worked hard at putting them to good use. The glory belongs to God. The other night I saw a television program about, about the, you know, the, the Greek crisis and um, a guy driving a taxi he said it was only a few months ago he was, he was a senior director in an investment bank and now he was working 12 to 14 hours a day driving a cab around Athens, which is not a very nice thing to do. He had to question his whole identity. It had all changed. Your identity is in yourself and what you strive to achieve and own. If that's true, then I invite you to a new way of life. One where you have what you have and you give it back to God and for others let's talk about the second one which is security verse 19 he says I have stored away for years to come something maybe we all dream of doing Augustine commenting on this story said he did not realize that the bellies of the poor were much safer storerooms than his bars. Security is one of those basic things. Have you, you ever heard of Maslow's hierarchy of needs? You know, it's kind of right in there, isn't it? One of the things we, we need. And I deeply empathize. I'm not a risk taker, particularly. But we have turned it into a life-defining activity and raised the bar over how much security we need. Here's the question I ask myself when I look at that picture, which is, what amount of monetary security is enough? What level of accumulated wealth would be enough for me to continue working for nothing and giving everything away? 
If money is the buffer between me and danger, how much of a buffer do I need? And my suspicion is that it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And that which I would have dreamt of ten years ago now is not enough. To which God says, you fool. There is no real security in anyone but God. The, um, the Exodus story, you know, the Exodus story, the Israelites come out of Egypt, they're freed from slavery, they're fed in the desert, and they're led to the promised land. Very often it's picked up as a picture of life, not just a historical event. But what it teaches us is that God wants us to live day by day. They could gather enough food each day for one day only, and twice for the, um, two days when it was Sabbath. And that their security lay only in him. When they were um, trusting in him, they defeated their enemies. When they didn't trust in him, their enemies defeated them. A very simple story about security. There is no security in the things of this life. That Greek taxi driver thought he was secure. And now he's working something he never dreamt that he would have to do. The third thing is here is purpose. So I've talked about identity, security, and now purpose. And here's where it says, now take it easy, eat, drink, and be merry. His purpose was to accumulate and enjoy, to serve himself. He even talks to himself. When it says, friend, relax, eat, drink, and be merry, he's talking to himself. You're starting to get a bit loopy as well. There were so many errors in what he does here. And here's the one that struck me. Even if he did have enough for himself, what was his job? What was his role in the community? He was a farmer. His job was to provide food for the community, be paid for that, and then meet his needs out of what he was paid. The farmer is an integral part of a wider community of people. There are obligations on people who farm the land to serve the community. And the same is true of bankers or teachers or vicars and priests for everyone. The purpose of our life, including your vocation and profession, is not to accumulate wealth for yourself, but to do what you do in the context of serving the community. And when, um, what's his name, the guy that the Archbishop has appointed, Ken Carson, Costa, when he starts looking at reconnecting the ethics of the finance world with the needs of society, I think that's what he has to look, like, look at. That this isn't just about you, this is about serving the community that makes you rich. And his early retirement here, this farmer, misses the fact that even if he doesn't need the economic activity anymore, the community does. The job he does it has value in itself, even if he's not taking any pay. And the second mistake is that God is not mentioned anywhere in the dialogue. There's no recognition, no inquiry as to what God would like him to do with his surplus. Three things, identity, security, and purpose. And when they all get mixed up, we end up in problems. 
Our identity doesn't lie in what we earn and what we have. Our security doesn't lie in what we earn and what we have. And our purpose doesn't lie in what we earn and what we have. All of those things rest on the summary of the law which Jesus gave, which was to love God with everything and love our neighbor as ourself. And in that lies security. So let me finish. Whether you're a committed Christian or undecided seeker or a convinced atheist, don't lose your identity in striving for things which you cannot attain. You cannot attain contentment, peace, security, happiness or satisfaction outside of the person and the purpose God created you for. Life is finite, sometimes quite short. It has an inherent value and a meaning that only finds its fulfillment in relationship. Whatever ladder you're climbing, make sure it's leaning against the right wall. Secondly, don't trust things more than God, because they will let you down, and money is the worst of all. Thirdly, be blessed in what you do. Profit, be prosperous. Use your God-given talents and circumstances, but for creative and generous purposes. And remember to thank God continually. And be generous. Um, when we um, started to prepare to come back from Kenya, we realized that in the kitty, we all had about 50 or 60 quid left from what we put in. So we added it all together. It came to about 400 pounds. And I gave it to our hosts, um, Henny and Becca, who some of you will know. The school that they run will run for three months on that money. That will pay three teachers and feed 60 children for money we would barely miss. It's amazing what God can do with the little. Finally, there is a job to do, and there will always be a job to do, over and above meeting your own needs. And the sooner your needs are met, the sooner you start to put others first. And the simpler your needs are, the sooner they will be met. Simplify your life. Require less. And you will be happier. Because you will start to meet the needs of others and be blessed in that. I'm not asking you to give up on every ambition or desire to sell your possessions or live in sackcloth. Simply recognize the tendency in us all to get sucked into this gravitational pull of needing more and more and more security 